Hi guys, it's Andy McDonald, physio and strength and conditioning coach, and welcome to the Informed Performance Podcast. I hope you're all well as you tune into today's episode. On today's show, I have Adam Loacano, the Director of Rehab at the Phoenix Suns NBA team. As part of the Arizona Human Performance Collaboration, Adam presented recently via Altis on Return to Play in Team Sports, unveiling how he thinks and approaches this topic, specifically in the NBA as the case would be for his environment. In this episode, we'll be discussing injury causation analysis, the bank, which is Adam's heuristic to describe varying MDT involvement during a rehab process, and we'll also be discussing technical or tactical drills during rehab. So a lot to get stuck into today. This episode of the Informed Performance Podcast has been sponsored by Vald Performance, makers of the Force Frame Strength Testing System. Used by health and performance professionals for assessing and improving performance and rehab, the Force Frame is a powerful solution for quickly and accurately testing isometric strength and imbalances. In addition to testing athletes, the Force Frame can actually also be used to maintain and improve strength, offering over 130 isometric training protocols. It's a portable system, it's easy to use, and it's designed to ensure that every measurement can be accurately and reliably measured time after time again. To learn more about the Force Frame, visit our sponsor, voldperformance.com. You're listening to the Informed Performance Podcast with me, Andy McDonald, and today's guest, Adam Loacono. So without further ado, here is today's episode. Adam, welcome to the show. It's, uh, it's great to have you on for a conversation. Likewise, Andy. Appreciate you finding some time for us to connect. I'm looking forward to catching up a bit. Just to begin with, and for the listener's benefit, what I'd like to do is just get you to explain your background and kind of talk us through, I guess, your route into sport and maybe bring us up to the current day. Sure thing. I'll try to keep it short. Um, by trade and formal training, I'm a physical therapist and strength and conditioning coach. I just finished my 11th season in professional team sports, uh, currently with the Phoenix Suns. And the NBA as their director of rehab prior to here was with the Atlanta Hawks uh, in the NBA with, as a performance therapist and spent eight years in professional soccer on the fitness and sports science side, working both men's and women's on uh, the MLS and NWSL with the New England Revolution and Orlando Pride for a bit. And that's pretty much how I got here um, in the context of team sports. And I had um, Jas and uh, Gordon Bosworth, who are both kind of part of the the Altis family. What what did um, your performance therapy role look like at the Hawks? Was it kind of in tune with what Altis do? I guess I I don't fully um, know what Altis's performance therapy model is. I certainly have learned and collaborated with a few of those guys over there, so to speak. You know, I'll speak upon what we did do at, at the Hawks, and it really was operating collaboration with the strength and conditioning staff on that side, really not just being isolated in the training room, being open to collaborating with the SNC staff, collaborating with the sport coaches. I think in my mind, when I think performance therapy, um, before I became familiar with Altus's program, to me, performance therapy is not just being isolated in the clinic. I think the world of physical therapy is the way it's, it's drafted in this country and the education pathway and the job opportunities right out of school uh, afford your opportunities to work primarily in clinical settings, and it takes um, the individual's own effort and intent to pursue other opportunities where you can pursue performance uh, roles. So I think when I think performance therapy, I think out of the clinic, I think hands-on with the athletes on the field, on the court, in collaboration with other performance specialists. 
Yeah, that sounds like it marries pretty well to uh, to their kind of philosophies and methodology. To be honest, um, I mean, I'm I'm doing their online performance therapy course at the moment, and from what I've read and consumed so far, and speaking to Jess, that sounds pretty pretty in tune with what they do. Um, can you we kind of can we talk through your role at the moment at the uh, the Phoenix Suns? What 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 is your title there? I guess, and and what are your responsibilities day to day? Sure thing. Uh, my title is director of rehabilitation. So what that involves is from a bigger picture role uh, responsible for managing the rehabilitation of any athlete that gets injured um, and then also managing uh, I mean like the, managing a lot of the symptoms that arise or collaborating with our other therapists or AT athletic trainers on uh, day-to-day symptoms. So relative to the rehab, it's coordinating with the other practitioners on staff, right? We have nine staff members, including performance and medical. So it's understanding how do we utilize all staff members to benefit the athlete? Like who's the expert in what, who is most skilled based on past experience or relationship with the player, coordinating all those moving pieces, not only in the training room, the weight room, but then also working with the coaches as well as like, as the player starts to, get back on the court. How do we coordinate what drills they can do? So really being responsible for the bigger picture of the rehab, but then also zooming in and being on the ground as well as providing some of the treatments. Like there are parts of the rehab where I step in and it's my role as far as that portion of the rehab. So it's a combination of being on the ground, doing day-to-day treatments, managing the rehab, coaching in the weight room, and also zooming out to be a part of the management team that is coordinating all the moving parts that goes into the wellness and performance of that athlete. Yeah. I'm envious. It sounds like a great role. Uh, it took quite a bit to get here. Uh, very fortunate that <laughs> I was brought out here by some close colleagues and friends. And truthfully, it's, it's been an opportunity where the, it wouldn't be as great if it wasn't for the people around me. Uh, they, they've really made it a lot, a lot of creativity and freedom within the role, which has been fun exciting and also a massive challenge as well yeah no doubt and you know we're going to talk about how you manage return to play and rehab processes uh, loosely speaking in this episode and i watched your altis presentation on this topic and what i'd like to do is just tease out some of the parts of this presentation that you've done um, and the processes that you you shared personally in it firstly I'd, I'd encourage the listeners to watch that video on the altis site and i'll happily put the link for that in the episode show notes so your presentation titled Return to Play in Team Sports, I thought was a really nice piece of content. And I think for anyone listening that's maybe entering the world of sport, especially, it will provide um, a nice insight into how you approach athlete care from early onset through to the rehabilitative and return to play process. So, you know, I thought it was quite evident uh, listening to you and watching you on it, that it was very, you're very clear on your staging of different principles and actions and where they kind of fall along that process. Can I ask you, you know, how did you piece together that presentation, I guess? And, and how did your personal framework come together? Uh, lots of iPhone notes and conversations with a lot of people over the years, truthfully. Um, <laughs> it didn't come overnight. Like it's, uh, I just finished my 11th season in pro sports and I finally feel like I'm at a place where I feel confident in who I am and what I'm good at and who the people are around me and have a sense of what it could be in the context of team sports. Cause it's different than if I were to work in a clinic or if I were to work um, 
in the private sector, right? It's return to play in those environments are drastically different than what we do here. Um, so the personal framework, I would say, relative to, you know, we talked on the presentation, principles, process, plans, that is something that's developed over the last, ooh, I think, four or five years in close collaboration with a friend and mentor, Bill Hartman out of IFAST, brilliant mind who has just taught me a lot. And we developed this idea of what are your guiding principles underneath a lot of what we do, right? Like there are so many commercial products out there in the world of physical preparation, physical therapy, nutrition. I mean, there's so many things. At the end of the day, we're all trying to sell something and that's valuable. There's value in that. But you have to ask yourself, and this is what Bill taught me, uh, you know, remain incredibly curious, right? Ask questions. And so if you learn to ask questions and understand what these other products are doing, right? Let's take, for example, in the world of physiotherapy, right? Manual therapy. There's 101 techniques for manual therapy. And so the context of principles came out of, okay, well, if all these things work, what are the underlying principles underneath that suggest why they do work, right? So in the context of manual therapy, right? The moment I put my hands on you at any point in time, doesn't matter what type of technique it is, if it's ART, FDM, if it's pin and stretch, if it's mobilization, the moment I put my hands on you, we know from a human response, there's a release of oxytocin, right? So that's like a principle, understanding what the hormonal response is. And maybe that's why manual therapy works. And then if you dive deeper into some of the sensory uh, components of manual therapy, like how much pressure am I dealing with pressure? Am I dealing with tension? Am I dealing with compression? All those things are how I view manual therapy in the sense of some underlying principles. So if you extrapolate that out to even bigger underlying principles, time and time again, I feel like I've learned across different industries, whether strength and conditioning, psychology, nutrition, uh, performance therapy, there's these three things that come to mind when you that I feel like I could relate a lot of my decisions to. And that's uh, how do you coordinate movement? How do you manage forces, absorption, production, and fitness, right? Fitness being, as I define as in my eyes, which is also Google defines it as well in the sense of how prepared someone is to manage the terminal task, right? Because it's not just fitness isn't just cardiorespiratory. There's so much more that goes into fitness, which we can certainly dive deeper in. But in a nutshell, like this concept of 3P, principles, process, plans, what are your underlying principles? Can you see through the BS that someone is trying to sell or some company is trying to sell? Because there's so much out there. Our market, our, our market is saturated with so much because it's just a booming business. It's, it's exciting to be a part of. But can you see through it all and really understand, okay, really, what is this? What is this about? And then the second part is like, what is your process? Having a consistent process and knowing that that process is going to change based on contextual factors. And that's okay. But you just still have your, in my eyes, still have this consistent thought or way of thinking. So that way you're at least consistent with communicating to those around you. And then the goal being, if you, if I were not in on a given day, does my team know what to do? Because we've established a consistent process. Because like we've seen, it's like Google Maps, right? You put them plug a point A to point B and there's four different ways to get there. I don't care how we get there, but let's do it in a consistent manner. Like, let's drive on the right side of the road. Let's follow the speed limit. Let's wear our seatbelt. Let's do it in a consistent process and play to your strengths of how you get to point A to point B. And to me, two things that come to mind is experimentation and exposure. 
right? A lot of things in this world are relative, like human growth is just dependent on exposure. And you can extrapolate that to strength and conditioning. That's periodization models, sports science, that's acute chronic, psychology and trauma, that's exposure therapy and physical therapy is post-op rehab, right? All this revolves around exposure. And then based on contextual factors and figuring it out, we're truthfully experimenting all the time, right? And we're experimenting this in the sense of being safe what we do, but to speak in absolute and say for certain that something's going to work, I don't think is realistic, right? A lot of times I'm changing in between session. I'm changing day to day, not because I don't know what I'm doing, but it's because I don't know if this is going to work because I got to test and retest within session, day to day, week to week. We have some foundational sciences that we base our decisions on and some things that have worked over time. So we're not going in a hundred different directions, but understanding that sometimes you have to experiment to know what's going on. And then ultimately that just leads to your final P, which is your plans, right? Which are based on contextual factors, which are what are your internal and external constraints? What type of injury is it? What type of factors are influencing from the outside? Are they on time? Are they, what facilities do you have? What equipment do you have? What's your, how much time do you have to work with the athlete? All those factors feed into your plan. So this is kind of how I've over time just been able to develop my own mental model, which I will come out and say, like, my model is probably wrong in certain aspects and I'm missing certain components, but it's a way I organize my thoughts and I'm able to communicate with those around me. And hopefully the goal is those that are around me are able to understand that mental model as well. So in the event that I'm not there, they know what to do because to me, that's a sign of a good leader. That's a sign of a good team. And that's how this framework over time has evolved. I think it's, I think you've done a brilliant job there of kind of getting a lot of complexity and moving parts into actually a really nice, um, clear language. And hearing you speak, it was really interesting because I think, you know, we're knowledge workers first and foremost, and we're also kind of applied scientists. And I think hearing you speak, it really illustrated to me like how important the framework is and how how we do need to have a consistent ideology that we stick to because we the evidence is always changing and we're always trying to stay up to date and cutting edge with the science that um, relates to our field but as you mentioned like you don't necessarily know that that science or that technique and that approach that you've specifically learned or hypothesizing is going to work with the athlete they might react differently to it and there's an art to that and I think it it kind of illustrates the importance of having that framework because then you can swap things in and out because you've got this overarching strategy that you're taking. Does that sound, you know, like a fair summary? Absolutely. And I think one thing that also like you take this concept of like what are your guiding principles? It's not only like your big principles too, but that you can even get down to like your micro principles in the sense of what are your non-negotiables when it comes to certain activities that y'all do? And it doesn't have to be like that's your absolute. But you have to commit to something at some day because like you alluded to, the science is always changing. There's there's so many different things that are out there, right? In the world of sports science, right? You could like part of my job in soccer was to analyze GPS data. By golly, there are a thousand and thousands of variables that I could look at. But at some point in time, I just had to learn and commit to a few variables, just like in performance therapy or strength and conditioning. I just have to commit to something that I believe in and understand that. I'm willing to bet I'm wrong and I'm willing to bet that I have to change that. But knowing that you have these, these foundational principles that can be extrapolated across multiple different professions, across multiple different people that then play into their strengths. Like, yes, that is 
to me, what's worked and what I've seen work, um, and also a product of what's not worked, like just as important, right? Like a lot of things that don't work feed into this model as well. When athletes are injured, I think there's a risk that clinicians consider mechanism of injury, but don't always dive deep enough into why did the injury happen? The focus can quickly become what is the injury or the grading and the type. Now, whilst that's critical, simultaneously, we do need to undergo some sort of post hoc analysis to A, gather information about the athlete in question and problem solve or strategize their return, but also B, to help identify risks for other athletes and mitigate future situations. I really enjoyed in your presentation that you made a reference of Simon Sinek and starting with why, which I think a lot of the listeners will have read and like the book, but I think whilst we read these books and titles, we don't actually then always apply them into our technical setting. Um, would you be able to kind of tell us about maybe some of the ways in which you interpret and try to evaluate injury causation, you know, where that is actually possible or, or useful? Yeah, I think it's a great topic to, to discuss. And I think you can go a couple of different ways with this. Um, right. Cause sometimes injury causation, you can really look at and figure it out. And sometimes you're like, you know what? I just don't know what went there and how it happened. Um, so I would say if you were to break into three categories, I think, right. You break it into uh, acute contact, acute non-contact, and then just general chronic. Right. I think in a, if I had to like, just put some arbitrary percentages on these in the sense of trying to figure it out in acute contact, I'd say 75% of the time, I'm less concerned about trying to figure it out. And 25% of the time, all right, let me figure it out a little bit. Because when it's acute contact, I can't control when a 240-pound center falls on my point guard and he rolls his ankle. Like there's no amount of preparation you can do to prevent, to quote unquote, prevent or manage that. Right. So yes, it's important to like think those things, but also understand there's a lot of external factors that are beyond your control. So if you were to think there was acute uh, contact, 75% of the time, not all that concerned about causation. And those acute non-contact um yeah i'm like 50 50 i'm like yes i want to know but i also understand how complex this, this system is and how many things i can't even begin to measure or account for so let's say for example let's take a let's take a hamstring strain i feel like that's a popular injury that people can relate to um something i saw quite a bit in soccer so in a hamstring strain non-contact all right, like um, if, we, if we relate back to your principles, like and starting, like Simon Sinek, start with why, like ask some questions. What were the, like, let's talk about fitness, right? Not only were they prepared to handle the task, or were they in a state of overtraining, right? Utilizing your acute chronic ratios, whether it was the load too much, was it not enough, right? Beginning to ask those questions. And maybe you can narrow down, like, oh, maybe it was too much for that athlete that week and they were overstressed. Right. That very well could be a possibility. So now you can look at your training load management and strategies for the rest of the team. Um, if you go down to the next principle of forces, well, we talk about forces and the ability to produce and absorb force. A lot of that comes down to just brute strength. Like, was this an athlete that if we look at some of their numbers, just isn't all that strong, which, you know, is a, another topic of debate. But there are certain force outputs that we know are protective against injuries. So are they within that window of protection or are that, is that an area that they can grow in, right? You can look at some of the Nordboard numbers. You can look at some of the lower extremity strength numbers, whether it be squatting or dead, uh, trap bar deadlifting, either one of those. There's some certain, there's some good research out there to suggest that certain levels of force production 
are protective against injury. So you can look at that. But then you can also look at the like the local tissue as well in the sense of is this, if you put your hands on them, is this a tissue of that's like hypertonic, hypotonic, like low tension, high tension? I, I don't know. But you can begin to look at some of those things. And then if you get down to the next principle of coordinating movement, it is, well, let's just look at standing posture, right? And so in a classic, like my time in soccer, like the classic posture I would see is that super lordotic um, posture, head past their toes, barrel chested, right? Like the analogy I used to say is you could eat a bowl of cereal out of their low back if they lie on their belly, right? They're just so scooped up there so that you have to think about, well, in the context of a hamstring, what does that look like? Am I putting the, the tissue at a resting increased, te- uh, high resting tension based on position, right? Position is often a product of tension, is a product of compression, is a product of where your center of mass is, right? You're just trying to stay upright and your body's trying to figure that out. So if we look at, again, saying the hamstring, we talk about force, fitness, and movement. Posture plays a role into movement. And then also you can look at running mechanics too in the sense of, is this an athlete based on the constraints that they have of their posture, the way they run, the way they move, that, yeah, hamstrings may be a product. It may be a area that is prone to injury. So in the context of that acute non-contact, that's kind of where my mind works, but also understanding there's some, there might have been some contextual factors that I can't see, I can't measure that also play a role in it too. At the end of the day, I have to manage it. So not getting caught up too much in the why, because if you get caught up too much in that, I think I've seen myself go down the rabbit hole of the, like the micro, microcosms of what it is rather than, okay, this is what it is. Let's just move forward. And then that third category being your chronic one, right? Like your chronic one, I'm, I'm more concerned 75% of the time and then 25% of the time I just manage it. Um, I think because chronic ones are often, like if you think chronic, right, you're thinking your chronic low back soreness, your chronic um, tendinopathies, whether it's patella or Achilles or medial epicondylitis, right? I think those, because they come on slowly, you have to ask the question as to why did it come on slowly and why did this stress occur? But I'm still going to go back to force, fitness, and movement because, Maybe the way your movement is is producing external excess of stress on that tissue, not in an acute way that's going to produce immediate symptoms, but over time, right? It's just like chipping away at something over time. It eventually is going to present itself. Um, Again, fitness in the context of, is it too much? Not enough. Like, is it going to catch up with you? And then forces as well. Like, am I producing forces like micro forces at that, at that tissue that over time are just going to add up. So I think that's how I would categorize the causation of injury. Um, but at the end of the day, when you, yes, it's important to understand why, but it's more important to know what to do with it and manage it and move forward. Cause I can't change the past. Like what happened, happened. Yes. Let's talk about it. Let's understand how can we get ahead of some of the things. So the modifiable things that we can get ahead of, but also understand there's some unmodifiable things that I just can't change. Yeah, actually, relating to this, I read a good quote yesterday from Stephen Covey that was the main thing is the main thing is the main thing. I think, like, I guess ultimately our, our our thoughts have to keep going back to how do we manage it and how do we get them back um, at the end of the day. Right. I think that's it's, it's a great point because I do think it's a balance of those in this profession getting excited and wanting to know why, 
Um, and I've certainly gone down the rabbit hole of having educating too much or trying to explore too many different things. And those are mistakes that I have. At the end of the day, I realized I've just wasted so much of my energy trying to figure out why, yet it hasn't influenced my plan at all. Right. And I think it's important to like, I think it's exciting to learn about those things and help help us grow individually and as a profession to kind of weed out what's important and what's not important. I think that's important. Asking those questions as to why those injuries happens, it helps us mainstream what we do. But at the end of the day, like you said, we have to hit the main thing. We have to focus on that and manage it. At the end of the day, get them back. I guess the most important thing about the why, uh, I guess, A, it helps potentially inform how you manage the athlete. But I guess critically, you need to avoid reoccurrence and you need to avoid occurrence happening in other athletes around you uh, and your ability to um, intervene if you can. I guess that's where the sort of values of why come in rather than, um, like you said, going too far down the rabbit hole when things happen. Yeah. And I think like from my perspective, working in team sports, sometimes asking why also helps us weed out what we're doing collectively as a team or like, did we do too much with that athlete? And like not in communication, like was, was there too much going on in the court in the weight room and training when we weren't communicating enough? It's like, Oh, you know what? I didn't even realize you were doing that. Like, yeah, I think I might've done too much with them in that day. In addition to what someone else was doing. Right. I think it also just allows us to look within, not just from the understanding how the injury happened, but looking at like the overall integration of our department and knowing who's doing what. And like, was that, did we, predispose that athlete to that or was that just something about product of everything that's going on i think it's also important to help those that are in the team environment look within as well as far as their process and their what they have set up structurally and organizationally to understand how to prepare and provide for these athletes as best we can Hmm. and i guess at the end of the day oh this could be a controversial opinion but in sport things will just happen you know, that, that you can't predict and you can't see. We're not at that level yet where we can um, fortune tell when injuries are always going to happen. We've, we can, we've got data and we've got um, some understanding that's catching up with us, but no, let's, let's, can. let's dive in on this controversial topic. Cause it's like a, it's a button for me. Like, I think this concept of injury prevention is farcy. I don't think it exists. It's something that we've been chasing for, Gosh, ever since I've been involved in team sport, like injury prevention, you have injury prevention specialists out there. And this isn't a knock on anyone, right? I think the context of injury prevention is great. The idea is brilliant. But the reality is we can't prevent injuries. Injuries are going to happen. It's why I have a job. Like literally my job is to rehab athletes that have injury. Like they're going to happen. I think this context of this concept, excuse me, of injury prevention as an industry as a whole, it's beneficial when you're selling something to an uneducated person about our industry. Like, I get that. Like, I have conversations in my front office, like, oh, we got to prevent injuries. We have to you know, make sure these guys don't get hurt. And in my head, I, I just come over time. Like, don't get me wrong. Like, I sold myself really on in my career. I was like, yeah, I'm going to help prevent injuries. Like, that's why I'm here. That's why I'm in this. But I've learned that that just doesn't happen. So if that, was ha- if that would happen, everything that we did, everything that we know about science, everything that we know about the human body and rehab and performance and psychology and nutrition, if that were the case, then why are injuries still happening? Why have hamstring injuries increased in the EPL? over the last decade, despite hamstring injuries being the hottest injury in soccer, right? So in this concept of injury prevention, we don't prevent injuries. They're going to happen. We manage them at best by influencing modifiable risk factors from a physical preparation side, by also trying to educate the sport coaches and those around us to understand load management, to understand how do I structure practice? 
all of these things can help influence the health of an athlete. But at the end of the day, you still don't know what they're doing outside of your watch either. So there's so many things that go into it that I've learned to see that I believe, personally believe, the concept of injury prevention, we need to move beyond that and understand at the end of the day, we're all athlete managers. We manage things as best we can. Mm. And I think it's interesting because, you know, people are, you know, quote unquote, selling themselves as being able to prevent injuries. I think people that work, you know, within sports medicine and around it understand that really what we're talking about is risk mitigation and management. But right. I, you know, this semantic debate about prevention is going to stay with us because I think partly because, you know, people are, you know, we loosely say injury prevention and it kind of keeps the term alive, I think. Yes, I, I think so too. It's a, and it also is, uh, I mean, it's, well, it's not jumped out too far this rabbit hole. I mean, it, it is semantics. Um, but I think it's a, it's an easy way to understand and also sell things to people, right? It's an easy way for an athlete to understand. Like, injury prevention sounds way more sexy than risk mitigation, right? Like, someone, like, it's just, that's just what it is. And that's okay. Like, that's cool. Like, I'm all for it, right? Like, whatever's going to get the buy in, whatever's going to get people on the same page. But for those that are in the industry, I think we can take a step back and really, like, are we preventing injuries? I don't know. I, I tend to think not. I think I'm more on your side. Like I think we manage things. I think we we mitigate risk as best we can. Yeah, and I think when when we do quote unquote uh, have low injury rates, which some people would say is then prevention. I think really what we're doing is managing stresses effectively and uh, and the loads that are placed upon an athlete, and we're conditioning them accordingly for the task. And I think yeah. that's really what we're doing and we're achieving. Yes, I, I agree. I agree with you there. Can we talk about the bank as a concept that you mentioned your in your presentation and as you call it, because I think it's a really nice heuristic to illustrate how interventions or professionals come into the process of rehab and maybe get phased out or and it, it kind of I think you I think you did a really good job of describing how professionals are used collectively in the process. Yes, the the bank. Um the bank, so the, the analogy is if I gave you $100 today and knowing that you had to do X, Y, and Z, how would you invest your $100, right? And that's just, it's, it's something that's evolved over time, working with multiple professionals. I mean, like in, in the context of team sports, you know, I, I, there's an athletic trainer, there's a physical therapist, there's a strength and conditioning coach, there's a sports scientist, there's a player development coach, there's a basketball coach. There's a general manager, there's an agent, right? There's all the, there's a nutritionist, there's a sports psychologist, right? There's all these different professions that are working in a team environment that are trying to help the athlete and all with good intentions and all are incredibly valuable. There's only a hundred dollars that you have. I can't, if I spend, if I give each profession, each person $5, right? 20 people. I think we have 22 people that could technically influence an athlete on any given day. If I gave each of you $5, is $5 enough to really get what you need, right? Because we know we're going to see him the next day, right? I'm going to see this athlete the next day, or I'm going to see him within at least the next 48 hours, which is a blessing for those that work in team sports. That's why we get to do a lot of creative things because we have so much frequency with these athletes. So rather than everybody getting $5 every day, why don't we decide what's the most important thing for the day, right? And let's give the person who's best equipped to manage that task. So let's say in the context of an ankle sprain, managing acute edema, right? Who's best on our team? That's our head athletic trainer, our assistant athletic trainer. They have so many tricks up their sleeves. They have good process. They have good protocols. 
they understand how to get the swelling out better than most on our staff. So it's like, all right, the goal today is to manage swelling. So let's give $100 to our athletic trainers to manage that. And so that's where the context of the bank came from integrating with the performance staff uh, and the medical staff and the nutrition and the coaches. It's getting everybody on the same page and knowing the same goal because eventually you're going to get your money. Like I'm going to pay you. Like it's not now. It may not be next week, but in two weeks, I'm going to give my head strength and conditioning coach $75 because I need this dude to start training. I need to start running, sprinting and jumping. You're going to get your money down the road. But right now I have to invest my money. What's most important. And what's going to give us my biggest return on investment? Because if I can't get rid of that swelling, you ain't going to get your seventy-five dollars again to run, jump, and change direction. So it's understanding that and being able to communicate that, and everybody understands money in the bank. Um, it's an easy way to express that. Um, that's kind of where that has evolved from a, a communication and language perspective, um, at least within amongst our team. Um, I can't speak for for anyone else outside of us. Do you find that kind of way of working or and I guess that analogy and concentration of who works with the athlete at what stage and why do you, do you find that, you know, reduces the stress on the athlete in terms of um, the amount of opinions going into them and the amount of tension that's being dragged around for them from different sources? I would like to think, yes. I mean, I think um, the more, the more strings anybody's pulling on a puppet, the more difficult it is to manage. If there's a fewer strings, it's a little bit easier to control. I think it also gives the athlete, um, same thing for them. Like, let's say, let's flip it on them, right? Okay. So I'm going to say, yes, like, let's flip it on them. If I have them, if I give them a hundred bucks, but I ask them to do seven different things, let's just easy math. So I do easy math, five different things, right? That means they only have $20 to invest in those five things. Right. But if I say, Hey, you got two things to do today. They can now put $50 in each of those two things. They can give me more intentional effort. They can give me more conscious effort. They can put more into it rather than trying to do too many different things, right? It's the analogy of doing a lot of things well and a few things great. I'm more interested in doing a few things great because I know the other things will come down the route, down the road. Does your, um, does your role kind of almost place you as the key worker would you say in the sense that like you have one key figurehead that um, manages the process and relays the information onto the athlete obviously other people are going to speak to the athlete as and when they're doing things with them but do you almost become the key worker because I know in like a as a sort of side topic in a more medical setting away from sport in a complex rehab setting where you've got a multidisciplinary team if you're if you liken that to sport there's quite often a key worker, regardless of the discipline that they come from, there's a person that is going to uh, spearhead the rehab process for that patient and and manage the dialogue between the multidisciplinary team. Do you kind of become that at, at the Suns? When it comes to a rehab place and a return to sport, yes. It's, it's evolved that way where I am communicating amongst multiple departments to understand what, to understand what people need, right? A lot of things I'll do, something, a lot of, the times I'll go to the performance staff and I say, what do you need from these players tomorrow? Go to our medicals. I say, what do you need from these players tomorrow? Go to our player development. What do you need from these players tomorrow? And understand what, what are the needs and how do we allocate those needs for that athlete, right? Like I have, I work with an incredible group of individuals where you need to let them do their thing, right? And just understanding, yes, managing those pieces and understanding and communicating to those 
today's the time I need you. Tomorrow's the time I need you. Today's the day I don't need you. Tomorrow's the day I don't need you. Um, yeah, I think it's, it's just the way it's evolved. I think you need that when you have so many people working with an athlete. If you don't have that person to managing it, like we ran into this issue early on with one of our rehab cases where I kind of got sidetracked from managing it. And I went to my, my, to my practitioners and they were both kind of in limbo. Like, am I supposed to be doing this? Am I not supposed to be doing this? So we literally just sat down one day in our, my office and we just got on the whiteboard and we just mapped it out. Okay, this person was responsible for this. This person was responsible for this. And they were both in a place of like, great, that's what I needed. Um, it's a balance of what I've learned as being this management role. Is it's a balance of telling people what to do rather than asking them to do something and let them figure it out. There's like, there's a balance, right? I've been in a situation where I've been told exactly what to do. And for me, that doesn't work. For some people, it does. For me, that doesn't work. So I think when you bring in good people, let them do good work. Just show them what needs to get done and have a conversation about how they're going to do it. And let's do it. I think it's interesting because you can, I mean, I think a lot of us can relate to this or we've maybe seen or heard about it, but you can, you can put all the different experts in the room. You can design the training facility to have all the people in the room and environmentally it looks like it's going to work as a setting for the athletes rehab but actually you do need someone just harnessing the communication and making sure um, things are happening in real time as and when they should and and there's a seamless flow and sort of process going on because even though you've got everybody in the same room and there's you know quote-unquote collaboration we can still fall into our silos I think you've got to have somebody looking after the process and maybe, you know, like I said, like a key worker or, or you in this case. I think, I think so. And I just think it's hard not to have, I think there, I think that exists a lot in team sports. I think some people may identify as that. Some people just do it inherently. And if you're asking like, oh yeah, it's kind of this person. Um, if you don't have that, if you don't have that, you know, I think the trend has been over the last decade, a high performance manager or, you know, in basketball, it's coming more as like a medical director, um, you have someone that, yeah, it just has their head in the clouds. And truthfully, there's there's a person that's above me, Brady Howe, who is even above me seeing a lot of other bigger picture things when it comes to the front office. So there's you have to have that because I think when you don't have that, that's where you run into this concept of, you know, you hear sports teams talking about silos. Um, you hear sports teams talking like referring to like, oh, like, they they take care of that. I was like, well, who's they? Like, oh, the the performance guys, or it's all oh, the medical teams. Like, they they take care of that. I don't do that. It's like, well, we should all be aware of what's going on. I may not have a role and be doing that, but we should all be aware of of those pieces. And I think having someone that's aware of all that reduces the risk for miscommunication and this connotation of having silos and teams. I think that's where the integration comes in. I think from those that I've talked to that work across sport across the world. Those teams that have someone, as you refer to as the, the key holder, um, those are the ones that I, from my experience and from what I've learned, tend to be more integrative than those that don't. Yeah, no, for sure. You, you mentioned earlier that you've, you've, you know, you've got an extensive background working in uh, football or soccer. And obviously that's a sport where there's a lot of data and understanding around small-sided games, drills and and ultimately ways clinicians or coaches can periodize sport-specific activity in a return-to-play process. Um, and I know there'll be, lists, there'll be some listeners who may work in basketball, but also may work in other sports where they might be able to benefit from being better at breaking down uh, the sport or the technical, tactical drills to assemble you know, some form of orderly return-to-play exposure. 
whether you're you know comfortable talking about this specific to the Suns or we can talk about it in a general sense, how do you strategize you know creating data sets or a menu of games and drills that you can use and implement in return to play? And you know I've no doubt this is very te- technology driven and sensor guided, but at the same time I think the the reasoning and the processes of how you do this is is probably most transferable to people. Yeah, it's a, it's definitely a, a topic that is particular interest of mine. Um, I mean, before I came into working as a strength and conditioning coach and physical performance therapist, I was a soccer coach. Uh, I coached two collegiate teams in the United States um, before I decided to go back to school and pursue physical therapy. So understanding that side of things has always been exciting for me because I I've been on the other side of planning a practice and actually coaching a sport. Uh, so. From, from my perspective now, um, when it comes to return to play, yes, it's been very technologically driven for us. I've been very fortunate to work with Daniel Bove, who both in Atlanta and here in Phoenix does an incredible job of understanding the physical demands of basketball because basketball is something I didn't play. So having to learn it from the back end and watch and observe and understand what drills do what, yes, there is a process to it and there's something about it. And I think if you have, like, if you don't have, right, you don't have technology available to us, right? If you don't have that luxury, I think there's two things that you can, can appreciate and manipulate to understand what demands are being placed on the athlete. And that is space and numbers, right? The larger the space you have with the fewer numbers in that space, um, the more, the more ground they're going to have to cover. So it's probably more aerobic in nature, right? Or if I'm in a tight space with high numbers, there's not going to be that much ground to cover. So it's less aerobic in nature, but it's more intense from like a power and strength perspective. So if you even wanted to break it down from, you know, manipulating numbers and manipulating space, what some of the research has done is just looked at what is the square meters or square yards or square footage that this drill provides for each athlete. So if you were to put it in, uh, do some math, like a hundred by hundred space, right? A hundred by hundred space. You have 10 players in there. You have, if my math's correct, you have 10 square feet for every athlete, hundred by hundred, 10 athletes, 10 square feet. And so what is those demands place? And so in a, like trying to bring it all back full circle, the way I look at drill design is I'm more concerned in a rehab setting. I'm more concerned about intensity first before I move to capacity. And the reason I say that is if I know you can handle a high intensity effort, when I mean high intensity effort in the context of basketball, I want to see you do one-on-one, right? Strength, um, more acceleration in nature. I want to see you handle that first before I start moving you to capacity work. Because we know once you introduce capacity, you reduce, introduce fatigue, intent, the ability to tolerate intensities drop off. So I want to be able to know that you can at least tolerate the high intensity stuff. And then we rebuild the repetition of intensity. So in the context of basketball, that looks like, you know, I think what I talked about in that presentation is we go from just variations of shooting, right? Without, without any contact, without any movement, right? Variations of shooting, form shooting, spot shooting, movement shooting. So then a little bit of like one on a script. So script is just running through play calls, right? So it's just a little bit of movement and then introducing one V one inside like the perimeter, inside the three-point line, managing the space. Then I'm more concerned about 3v3 in the half court, a little bit more intense, a little bit more movement, some aerobic capabilities to it before opening up to 5v5. And that's the way I've learned 
to be able to manipulate it. And in the soccer world, there's a lot of literature in the Aussie rules football, rugby. Those sports have a lot more research on the context of small-sided games. And so it's understanding what type of stimulus are you providing to the athlete with the drill you're given. And then manipulating variables of space, numbers, and even duration of the drill to figure out the physical demands of that activity. And to me, that's a very important part of the return to play process. And understanding those components has afforded me the opportunity to be able to get athletes back on the court sooner, or at least just touching the ball, smelling the hoop, working with the coach, being around the team, rather than being isolated and removed from the court um, with the medical or performance staff. And I think any athlete would rather be on the court working on working on their game than being isolated away, working on other things. Not saying the other things aren't important. They're just as important. We work in tandem with each other, but it's allowed us to be able to do some of those things on the court. So rather than being esoteric, let's like really talk about what that is. So like if in the context of an ankle sprain in that, in, like in that presentation, I used to do a lot of aerobic plyos, right? A lot of low intensity, long ground contact times uh, with the athlete before putting them on the court, right? Just building up their tolerance, the tolerance for jumping. But then I realized, can't I just have them go take a bunch of jump shots, like spot shots and just control, just like in, in, in baseball, right? When they have a return to throwing program, they just control for the distance between the athlete. Well, can't I just control the distance from the athlete to the hoop to, to manage the intensity of the jump and then just manage the volume of shots that they take? Isn't that the same thing as aerobic plyos? Or in the context of change of direction, can I have them do some one-on-one script where they have to move left to right, up and down? They have to do an S pattern on the court with the coach, with the basketball, rather than having them do that isolated on the side. Now, there's instances where the athlete's not ready for that. There's instances where I may check that box in a, in a controlled environment before I do an uncontrolled environment. That's important. But I've, I've leaned more towards the side of let me see, let me observe them on the court I have a very good relationship with the coaches that are on our staff. I'm very fortunate to work with some amazing coaches that are super open to these ideas. And we're creating that drill to get the physical stimulus in the context of the sport rather than removing the sport and just doing an isolated physical activity. And that stems from some concepts of tactical periodization that's popular in, in the soccer model, right? Tactical periodization, manipulating the physical, the technical, the tactical, and creating a drill that integrates it all. Right. So can I do the same thing in a return to play process with the basketball coach? Now, the, I will point out that this requires someone on staff being courtside. Right. And not every team, not every sport has the capability to do that. So that's where I think it is. That's where the completing the drill in, in a controlled environment to know that the athlete can handle those physical demands before putting them on the court. Because I don't want the coach thinking about the physical demands. Just want you to coach, do that focus on basketball. So I just like throw that caution to the wind in the sense of to be able to integrate as we do from the court drill progression. It requires being there, observing, paying attention to the nonverbal language. Is the athlete moving in an aberrant way? Are they grabbing at their injured part? Are they having some grimacing of the face? All of those things matter. And if you can't do those things, then certainly Let's pull them back. Let's do things in a controlled environment and then put them back out there. May I think you've done a great job there um, <laughs> breaking down the sort of core components of tactical periodization. Because I think 
I think it's quite easy when you change sports or the nature of a sport, say like you have field sport to court sport, um, especially if you haven't played the second sport yourself. It's it's quite easy to get uh, distracted by the noise, isn't it? And trying to just understand the new rules or the new terminology and the new jargon. But actually, I think what you've done there is a great job of um, going back to the root of what you're actually trying to figure out in any sport that, you know, is a game of attrition where you're trying to move a ball or, or, um, or get a team to achieve a goal collectively on a court or a field. It, it's funny to say that because before I made the switch from soccer to basketball, I was talking to my buddy. I'm like, man, he asked me, like, what's the one thing like that you're concerned most about making a transition? I'm like, man, it's like it's actually understanding the sport. It's like I know basketball. I'm a, I was a fan of basketball. I watched it. But I just don't know the physical demands as well as I do soccer. I don't understand the rules as well. He's like, well, it's a square playing surface. They use a round ball and they have to put the ball into the net. I think you're in a good place. And like just like hearing him say it so simply, right? Just like so simple. It's just like, okay, let me take a breath and let me see what the similarities are. And like over time, like one question I get quite a bit is what's the difference between MLS and NBA? Well, I just like, what's the difference between soccer and basketball? Well, you just have a bigger space with more numbers. So that changes the physical demand of what's needed, right? Like why do you see more soft tissue injuries in soccer and more joint related injuries in basketball, right? Like it's just the nature of the physical demands of sport, right? Basketball requires high acceleration, deceleration, change of direction. Soccer requires high aerobic capabilities, covering large distances, which they just place different demands on the body. Just understanding those things and just getting back to that analogy of square playing surface, round ball, net, just always bringing yourself back and understanding there's a lot of similarities, but there are differences. But that shouldn't change the principles of what you're chasing when it comes to return to play, when it comes to drill design, when it comes to rehab performance training, right? Like, not to, like, let's pull back here to those principles. There's a reason why I believe in force, movement, and fitness, because I think they apply to all field sports, regardless if it's basketball, soccer, rugby, lacrosse. Like, we know that those risk factors are consistent across multiple sports. So that's, in my opinion, having force, fitness, and movement be a key component of what you do from therapy, from strength and conditioning, to even on-court work, right? Understanding how to coordinate movement with the ball in your hand. And when I'm trying to get around this screen, it's probably important to put my foot in this place and not this place, right? Those things are a part of it. Now, it's we don't have it all figured out, right? Like, let's just be fully clear. We do not have it figured out. No one does. Because if we all had it figured out, we'd all be doing the same thing. But we're not doing the same thing. We're all trying to problem solve. It's a very complex thing, which I think is exciting, which keeps us in this sport and keeps us trying to progress forward and be a part of it. Mm. This is a useless statement, but it's the same but different. <laughs> Same but different, isn't it? Basically, and I think it, I think what you just said loops back to maybe what we started speaking about, and it, it just illustrates why it's so important to have clear frameworks and clear principles that guide you professionally through the process for managing an athlete's rehab. Because obviously, there's nuances and there's differences in the sports, but actually, from start to finish, you're trying to achieve fundamentally the same thing. Yeah, I think that's a great point you bring up. It's a, I had this conversation recently with. Um, we were practitioners out here in Arizona with the sports teams and we were talking about return to play. And we're just like, you know what? Like, honestly, what we all are doing dependent on like, like the first, you know, we, we were joking the first like 60 to 75%. It's all the same. Like we're all trying to restore the tissue. We're all trying to restore whatever it is that had an injury, right? We're trying to restore it from each of our own craft, which ultimately we don't kind of chasing the same stuff because at the end of the day, it's a human, it's tissue, it's a biology, it's physiology, it's psychology. Like we're all working within the same constraints. But then it's that last 40 to 25% that's dictated by the sport, which is dictated by the physical demand. So I think 
you know, it's a great point you bring up that is not talked about enough that we talk about basketball specific training, soccer specific training, but general preparation exists in the rehab process too. Like there's general rehab that has to get done just to restore whatever injury that there was, right? Trying to bring them back, trying to rehab them back. It's that final bit that is predicated by the sport. And I think you can, you know, we won't go into specifics, but you could look at like an Achilles tendon and you could look at a calf tear and there'll be a point in the rehab where if somebody looked at what you were doing without knowing the actual injury, they'd be hard to distinguish between what, what you're actually working with, what type of injury, because there's going to be so much overlap in uh, certain rehab exercises, certain treatment modalities that are being applied at certain moments in time. So I think it's interesting, isn't it? We kind of, we do dive into the detail, but there's so much overlap and fundamental sort of common ground between athletes, between teams, between injury specifics. And um, yeah, I think it's, it's, it's been really nice to talk to you and actually just zoom out to the fundamentals again. Absolutely. Um, yeah, I mean, I definitely think uh, it's, it's, been, it's been fun and, and just chatting through these and just going down some rabbit holes and, and discussing a few things, man. It's been fun. And um have you got any interesting projects in the works for people to follow? And I guess, you know, following on from that, where's the best place for people to follow you? Yeah, I'm, I'm trying to pick up the social media game. Honestly, not great at it. Um, you follow me on Instagram, uh, Loyakino. Uh, also have started a, a group out here in Arizona. Arizona is a hotbed for practitioners. Uh, a lot of sports out here, a lot of athletes out here. So there's a few of us from a couple of different sports teams that have, created this group called Arizona Human Performance Collaborative. And it's really an opportunity for multiple practitioners across multiple sports to address the same topic, right? Like that's where that Altus video of return to sport came across. You know, there's four of us in four different sports putting out how we manage return to sport. Same topic, just four different perspectives. You know, the goal being get other practitioners involved um, here in Arizona. So that's AZHPC um, on Instagram. You can follow me on Twitter as well. Um, again, not that active, but starting to put out some stuff out there for y'all. Cool. I mean, we'll share your your social handles and we'll share the uh, the collective that you just mentioned as well in the show notes so so people can easily find it. But Adam, mate, thanks so much for coming on. I've uh, I've really enjoyed the conversation and I could I could happily have a coffee of you and, and continue this chat. <laughs> Likewise, man. This was fun. This, I enjoyed doing this. It's great talking shop with like-minded folks. Pleasure, mate. Thank you. You're Talk to you soon. I'd like to thank Adam for coming on today's show and sharing his approach or way of thinking about return to play processes. Please do the Informed Performance Podcast a huge favour and subscribe to the show if you haven't already. It makes an enormous difference to the success of the show. If you're enjoying the episodes that we put out, then make sure you follow us on social media to receive episode updates and news. Over the next few months, we'll be growing our efforts beyond podcasting to provide you with more performance and sports medicine insights. Follow us on Instagram at InformPerformance or on Twitter at InformPod. This episode and all others have show notes which accompany the audio that can be found as usual on our website, InformPerformance.com. Thanks for listening to today's episode with me, Andy McDonald. Join us next week for another performance-focused conversation.